Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Josie Warden. I'm an Associate Director here at the RSA and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's talk. I'm really delighted to be joined today by Roman Krasnarek. I think he's one of the most exciting thinkers of, uh, around at the moment and we've, luck- we've been lucky to have him here for some previous talks, including The Power of Introspection. So you might recognise him from that um, or from the RSA Animate that was created from it, which I think has had about a million views online. So obviously really influential in the way we think about empathy and about social change. Um, it's great to have you here today Roman I know you're here to talk about your new book which is also launched today so congratulations on that Um, I'm reading an (laughs) e-book I'm reading an e-book so I can't kind of wave a copy at you Um, but it's called The Good Ancestor How to Think Long Term in a Short Term World and it's a really essential there we go there it is (laughs) <laughs> um, I think it's an essential kind of update on on your thinking around empathy and is inviting us to reconsider our relationship with one another with how we live now and particularly with the future generations to come um, I've really really enjoyed reading it I actually read it in the park this weekend which is um, a place that I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of months and uh, has really I guess I've got to know it like the back of my hand um, so I was wondering actually if we could kick off with thinking a little bit about that um, the kind of time that you're publishing this and presumably you weren't expecting what's happened uh, to be to be what the situation we're in um, but I wonder how you feel about whether Covid has really kind of changed our changed our relationship with crises you talk in the book about the the challenges that we maybe have around um, not necessarily feeling a kind of urgent urgent need for change sometimes and I wonder if you think Covid has, has changed that and might be a way of kind of kicks kick-starting a shift in, in the way that we think and act. Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Josie. And it's a really interesting question because, of course, while I was writing the book, I was thinking about future crises uh, a lot. I was thinking about the impact of the climate crisis, of biodiversity loss entering in a, a sixth mass extinction. I was thinking about threats from artificial intelligence, genetically engineered pandemics. I did have pandemics in history in the past in the back of my head, but I didn't expect we we're going to be... Um, inside one, particularly as this book was coming out. But towards the end of the book, I do quote um, the economist Milton Friedman, who in fact I don't quote very often, our our views of the world aren't very similar, but he does say or did say that only a crisis, real or perceived, can create real change. And so I've always been interested in the power of a crisis to transform societies, politics, Uh, economies. And that's certainly what we're facing at this moment, both in this country, in the UK, but also globally. But the thing about a crisis is that on the one hand, you can sort of pick and choose your examples to suit your argument. So I might say, okay, look, I'm interested in long-term thinking and our capacity to create a world that works for future generations beyond our own lifetimes. And I can say, okay, let's look back to the Second World War. And out of that crisis emerged extraordinary pioneering long-term institutions like the World Health Organization or the European Union or the NHS and welfare states in many, many countries. But actually, you could pick another crisis, go back a few years to the Great Depression, and that crisis went in two different directions. For some countries, it was, in a way, a positive thing that led to um, social democracy uh, in Scandinavian countries and other places. But in other places, Germany, for example, it led to fascism. So a crisis is a bit of a devil's fork. It could go either way. And today, I think we're really feeling that both in politics and economics. Politically, we've got the dilemma that there may be an authoritarian residue from 
coronavirus that countries like Hungary or Israel, others that have given themselves emergency powers, their leaders have, they want to cling on to those powers. And on the other hand, you see potential for great grassroots democracy. Just think of all the local WhatsApp groups that have emerged even in my street where I live here in, in Oxford. Um, these are the beginnings of a kind of grassroots revival of democratic participation, which links to citizen assembly movements and so on. So you've got those potentials. And then equally outside politics in the realm of economics, you've got um, you know, a potential for just a kind of a downward spiraling business as usual, where big companies say we need to get rid of our environmental regulations to kick, re restart the economy and find jobs. And then you've got other places like, you know, the city of Amsterdam, which is ramping up its circular economy um, transformation programs as a way of coming out of COVID-19. And that's a much more sort of regenerative, I think, and positive view. So I think crisis can go either way. It's up to us to decide where it's going to go. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like it's a moment that opens up possibility for change, but it could go in different directions. How do you think it do you think it might have any bearing on how we think about other crises that maybe don't feel quite so imminent, such as the climate crisis, the com you know, conversation that actually um, we've known about this for a long time, but it hasn't seemed like such an urgent need for action. Do you think that COVID might kind of um, kickstart us thinking about how we deal with some of these other big challenges, even if they don't feel quite so urgent? Yeah, I do really think that that is a possibility because you know, these moments of crisis are almost moments to stop and think about what really matters. We do it on an individual level. We think about our families, but I think also as societies, we think about, okay, do we want to just return to business as usual? And I think things like the climate crisis can come to the fore. I think the problem is that partly we're always in this dilemma in our own minds and in our societies between the short term and the long term. You know, do we you know, party today or save for our pensions for tomorrow? Do we upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? And the way I think about it is that we've got these two different parts of our brains. We've got, here I can show you it, this is the short-term marshmallow brain, okay? This is the part of our brain which focuses on instant rewards and um, immediate gratification, and it's about an 80 million year old part of our minds, and that's driving us constantly towards short-termism in many ways and not seeing those big issues like the climate crisis and other ones which may be on the horizon. So there's a marshmallow brain, which of course is named after the famous marshmallow test from the 1960s where kids had a marshmallow placed uh, on a table in front of them. If they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they would be rewarded with a second marshmallow. And of course the research showed that most of them snatched the marshmallow, they couldn't resist. But we also have another part of our brains and this is it, this is the acorn brain. And the acorn brain and the marshmallow brain are in this constant tension. And this is the part of our brains, which is all about long-term thinking and strategizing and planning. And it lives here in the frontal lobe above our eyes and particularly in a part called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And human beings are amazing at this kind of long-term thinking and strategizing compared to most other animals. So like a chimpanzee will um, make plans a bit into the future. So they'll take a branch from a tree and strip off the leaves to make a tool to put into a termite hole, but they will never make a dozen of those tools and put them aside for next week. Right? But that's exactly what we do as human beings. We make those tools, we plan for our children's education, save up money for mortgages, plan for our own funerals. And that acorn brain is how we built the pyramids and the Great Wall of China. It's how we voyaged into space. So when I'm thinking about 
the question that you asked about whether we have a capacity at this moment of crisis to start embracing the reality of other crises. I think it's all about switching on the acorn brain. It's about recognizing as a first fundamental step, a different question or a different view of human nature, that we are not just short-term marshmallow snatchers, but we have the capacity to be long-term acorn thinkers. So let's switch on our ability to become part-time residents of the future. That's really interesting. It's great, such a great visual metaphor as well to be able to understand the two different things. Um, I guess one of the one of the things you talk about in the book is is the idea of colonizing the future, which I think seems like a really powerful powerful way to explore what it means to kind of switch on the acorn brain. So I'm wondering if you could unpack a bit more about what you, you mean by that and, and, and how people can kind of um, understand what that might mean for, for future, future generations. Yeah, so I think we all recognise that we live in an age of pathological short-termism where there's those politicians who can't see past the next election and businesses can't see past the next quarterly report and we're constantly pressing the buy now button. Um, and I think when you step back and look at this issue, I, what I see is that humankind has colonized the future, that we treat the future like a distant colonial outpost, um, devoid of inhabitants, where we can freely dump ecological degradation and technological risk and nuclear waste as if there was nobody there. And it's a bit like the way when Britain colonized Australia in the 18th and 19th century, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius, nobody's land, the idea that there was nobody there, no indigenous people. They could take it as they pleased. Of course, there were indigenous people. And I think now we've got not just this terra nullius idea, but we've shifted to tempus nullius. The future is seen as nobody's time, as an uninhabited territory that's ours for the taking. And I think the great tragedy of this colonial situation is that future generations are not here to do anything about it. You know, they can't throw themselves in front of the king's horse like a suffragette or block an Alabama bridge like a civil rights protester or go on a salt march to defy their colonial oppressors like um, Mahatma Gandhi. And I'd just like to show you an image, if I can, that I think illustrates the scale of this tragedy. This is an image called The Scale of Unborn Generations developed by a writer called Richard Fisher. And I think it's brilliant because it shows that there in the little green circle are everybody who's alive today, 7.7 .7 people, the living, and if you cast your mind back over the last 50,000 years, and let's get really long term here, um, an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died. But if you go forward 50,000 years, assuming this century's birth rate levels often remains constant, then an estimated 6.75 trillion people will be born. So there are our future generations in that giant orange circle. And of course, they far outweigh everyone who's alive today, even in the next millennium, an estimated 135 billion people will be born. And so I think I look at that orange circle and I see my children and their children and all the future generations, my nephews and nieces, and I see them all looking back on us and asking, well, what did we do at this moment in history when we had the chance? Did we really embrace the idea of being good ancestors? And that's a question that the immunologist Jonas Salk you know, asked, you know, he was the guy who discovered with his team the polio vaccine in 1955. And he thought the great question was, age was you know, are we being good ancestors? How can we do that? And that's all about extending our time horizons, bringing that circle of future generations into our minds. When we have, um, you talk a lot in the book about the, 
the kind of institutions that we have and the um, systems that we have in our society that are really are, or they maybe potentially would have been designed to help us think in the longer term, are actually really constraining our thinking. Um, do you, how do you see us being able to kind of break free of some of those institutions? And do you, you know, lots of people talk about potentially the need with the urgency of climate change, the need to actually um, maybe have a, a kind of benign dictator who might be able to help us to, to make these changes very quickly. Um, do you see there being a tension between that sort of need for urgency and really being able to think in the long term and the kind of democracy and processes that we have at the moment and, and whether they'll be able to be kind of compatible? Yeah, I think that certainly the way I look at it is, and this is a really, I find this a really difficult issue because if you look at the history of the institutions that we are embedded in, consumer capitalist economies, representative democracy, nation states, the big stuff, these were all designed in the Holocene before we entered the Anthropocene era where we are pushing the earth over critical planetary boundaries into a hothouse earth situation of uh, climate change and um, ecological disaster. Uh, they weren't designed for this world. They were designed back in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. They are not fit for purpose, right? And if you really embrace that idea in a deep sense, then you have to start rethinking our core institutions. So take the example of you know, democracy or representative democracy. In a systems thinking sense, um, there's a problem with representative democracy because there's no feedback coming from future generations about what they think about the impact of our actions on them, okay? So there's a missing feedback loop and that means democracy is a fundamental, has a huge blind spot. I didn't even, I used to be a political scientist and for 10 years I thought I was an expert on democratic governments and, and it never once occurred to me in that time that we disenfranchise future generations in the way we once disenfranchised slaves and women. Of course, there's still struggles in those areas, but this is a huge gap. So what do we do? Well, some people have started saying, people like James Lovelock and others saying, well, all our squabbling democratic politicians, they can't deal with problems like the climate crisis. We need enlightened despots, benign dictators. We need to become more like China or like Singapore. These are the places which, and systems which have been able to think more for the long term, plan for the long term, whether it's in terms of developing you know, uh, uh, renewable energy in China or long-term education housing policy in Singapore. And it's a very enticing argument. I mean, a lot of people like this idea. I think it's growing, this idea we need benign dictators. But so I, I decided when I was writing this book, The Good Ancestors, actually look empirically at the evidence for this. And what I found working with a great statistician called Jamie McQuilkin, who developed something called the Intergenerational Solidarity Index, and it rates 122 countries on 10 different indicators of long-term public policy. So ranging from environmental indicators, um, you know, like carbon footprint, um, to social ones such as investment, long-term investment in education and healthcare. We found, firstly, that a surprising mix of countries that are at the top. So you've got Iceland and Sweden, usual sus suspects alongside Costa Rica or Sri Lanka, Uruguay, so quite a wide range of countries, not just OECD ones. But, um, and also, of course, you've got countries like the UK is only 45th, uh, the US is 62nd, so they're not performing pretty well. But if you plot the um, uh, intergenerational solidarity index against a measure of democracy, you see something really interesting. In fact, I can just show you very briefly a quick picture of this, if I may, if I can speed through to it. Um, 
just here, this image plots along the, the bottom axis, the intergenerational solidarity index from zero to 100. So a high score means you've got a lot of very good long-term public policy. And then on the y-axis going upwards is a, a very famous measure of democracy called VDEM. And what you see is that there's a best fit line going from bottom left to top right. That means the more democratic you are, the more long-term you're likely to be. And the more autocratic you are as a, as a, as a country, the less long-term is your public policy likely to be. And you've got some outliners, liars such as China down there on the bottom right. But in general, democracy and long-term thinking broadly go together. And I think that really hammers that argument about benign dictators. There might be a few exceptions, but in general, don't think a dictatorship is going to give you long-term public policy. You're much better off trying to deepen the democracy of your existing system. And of course, we can do that, like Wales as a future generations commissioner. A lot more work can be done in that area. So I don't believe that benign dictatorship argument. I just don't think the empirical evidence is there. Yeah, it's, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of that book, that the really recognising that the challenge is there because it feels like such a dangerous, to me, feels like such a dangerous uh, way of taking it. And again, that it's setting us into continuing, I think, a mindset where we like the idea of something being very simplified and uh, streamlined, when actually maybe we need to be thinking a lot more about how we can embrace the way that the, the natural world works and something that which is more is about much more about complexity and natural systems evolving together and you talk a bit in the book about um about the idea of regenerative economies and also the sense that um the narratives that we have that separate humans from nature being challenged at the moment and you give some examples of different frameworks and thinking that that kind of is challenging that i wonder if you could um explore some of those with us yeah, I think the idea of thinking regeneratively is really fundamental. And I think there are enormous lessons in the field of ecological economics, which is something I never studied. I studied economics as an undergraduate you know, 25 years ago, but I never heard of ecological economics. The idea, you know, coming out of work from people like Herman Daly and others, that we should be living within the biocapacity of the one planet we know that sustains life and not just jetting off to Mars as a, our ambition, uh, like Elon Musk wants us to do. And we need to be you know, not using resources faster than we can regenerate them and not creating wastes faster than they can be naturally absorbed, living in balance and thriving in balance. And something that really influenced me a lot in that area, thinking about this, was not just the work of regenerative economic thinkers like um, Herman Daly, but the biomimicry designer, Janine Benyers, who I think is one of the great geniuses of our time and I think probably deserves to be much better known, but she's increasingly well known. And I came across this extraordinary quote of hers where she talks about long-term thinking. She says something along these lines, this is not an exact quote, but <laughs> something like this, which is that, well, what does success in nature look like? And she says, well, success in nature looks like not just keeping yourself alive and your offspring alive, but keeping your offspring alive for 10,000 generations or more. And then she asks, well, how have, how's nature learned to do this? And what she says is that, you know, whether you're looking at a beaver or a bear or a bird, that what nature's learned to do is to take care of the place that will take care of its offspring. That's what our species have learned to do. That's about not fouling the nest. That's how you survive over the long term, because you're not going to be around in 10,000 generations. So, but if you learn to live within the boundaries of the environment, the ecology in which you're bedded, you are going to survive. That's the most basic prerequisite 
of it. And so she talks about learning from nature's 3.8 billion years of R&D. And I believe we absolutely need to do this, that life has created conditions conducive to life. That's how it works. And this absolutely blew my mind when I read this, because I suddenly realized something very fundamental, that if you're interested in long-term thinking, it's not just about thinking in terms of time into the future. It's about thinking about place. In other words, if we want to survive over the long term as a species and as a planet, we need to be not fouling the nest. Yet that is exactly what we have been so good at doing. That's what the great acceleration has been about. That's why when you look at those figures about um, you know, the, our greenhouse gas impacts and so on, that we're using 1.6 or 1.8 Earths per year, those kinds of different measures or donor economics, we're going outside planetary boundaries, these kinds of things that we are no good at keeping within uh, those, the biocapacity of the planet. We're very bad at um, not fouling the nest. And that is our absolute priority as a species. And in terms of long-term thinking, I absolutely believe in the importance of having what the ancient Greeks called a telos, a goal. We need goals in our own lives. Like Nietzsche said, he who has a why to live for can, can deal with any how. You know, that as long as we've got something, a transcendent cause outside ourselves, that can get us out of bed in the morning, we're probably going to be okay and have a meaningful life. Well, I think we need that as a society too. And I believe that one planet thriving, um, living within those boundaries, which is the fundamental to all regenerative thinking, whether you're thinking of creating a circular economy or rewilding or in other areas, it's all about living within those boundaries, not fouling the nest. Yeah, and I think that you're saying about that kind of, that, yeah, that telos, that place that you want to get to, um is there i'm wondering if there's a i, I was thinking about a lot when i read your book about the the relationship between maybe particularly maybe in the west the sort of loss of religion and the and then at the same time this acceleration of industry and the way we are kind of acting at the moment do you see there's any kind of relationship between our the idea of what we're believing in and what we kind of want to get to and our inability to to think long term at the moment now, bringing up religion is a really interesting question because, you know, historically, religions have a very mixed relationship with the living world. You know, for, since medieval times, Christianity, for example, has had this idea of dominion. You know, the idea that human beings can dominate nature. This is God's gift to us and we can do with it what we like. Of course, there's always been exceptions like St. Francis speaking to the birds, but that hasn't been the mainstream. And since the 60s probably there's been a, a rise of ecological thought in you know Christian you know ecology things like that um, which are trying to bring us back to a more integrated interdependent sense of how we relate to um, the natural world um, and I think that if we are going to have a truly long-term mindset and become good ancestors we need to do everything we can to change our values now there are some positive moves I mean the Pope himself in his last encyclical, Laudato Si, Praise Be, talked about the importance of intergenerational solidarity, the idea of intergenerational justice. This is an extraordinary shift in thought. Of course, the Vatican Bank may well be still investing in fossil fuels. We don't really know because they're keeping it all secret. My hunch is that they haven't divested from fossil mm -hmm. fuels yet. So there's a difference between principle and practice. But I think we need to recognize that religion, along with education, is one of the most fundamental ways that we change our values and that shape our values. 
the idea that we need to expand what our imagined community is, is fundamental. Back in the 1980s, the uh, historian Benedict Anderson talked about the idea of the imagined community and how nation states were forged in the 19th century by creating a, an imagined community that went beyond the family and the, the local town or city to a nation where you couldn't possibly meet everybody, but you would have an allegiance to them. You'd even go to war on their behalves. That's what the First World War and the Second World War is about. But I believe now we need to shift the imagined community, not just across space, but through time to include future generations. So there's a real question of what role religion will play in that. But in a way, and I say this as someone who's a secular person, maybe we don't need religion as much as we think we need to do this. Of course, it would be great if the world's one or two billion Catholics, you know, got behind into deep intergenerational justice ideals. And I think that is slowly happening. But if you think about the last 50 years and the rise of environmental organizations worldwide, this is like an emergence of a new kind of religion in a, in a way. Now, the, most of the world's environmental organizations, hundreds of thousands of them there are, don't have religion written into their mission statements. Most of them do. But in a way, they all worship the same thing. They worship the earth. There's some kind of idea of the sacredness of the earth, that we need to preserve this mother earth, some concept of Gaia underlying um, their ideologies in a way. And I kind of like this idea because I, I think that these environmental and ecological organizations are like a massive decentralized religion. Um, they're inculcating those values of long-termism, but maybe without the problems of having highly centralized religious figures at their head. Um, though there are a few kind of semi-religious figures in the uh, global ecological movement. So yeah, I think that these kinds of values-based systems, religion, education, are really fundamental for challenging the short-termism built into the industrial system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels to me it's almost a case of well, for personally, because for a spiritual sense rather than necessarily a religious sense. And I think, as I was saying, reading it in the park and being surrounded by the trees that I guess I've spent a lot more time looking at in the last couple of months, those things, it makes you feel like there is a kind of spiritual dimension to some of this. Um, and yeah, actually, if I can just interrupt you for a second yeah. there. Um, you know, when I was doing the research for the book, I, I asked Richard Dawkins, probably the world's best known atheist, what he thought about exactly this issue you talking about having a spiritual connection with the earth because I was I said to him I said don't you think at this moment of ecological crisis surely there is some value in having um, you know seeing the earth as a kind of a deity almost or having a spiritual connection uh, with the living world in order to galvanize people to care about it and I really thought he was going to sort of pat me away you know like some kind of fly but actually he was really interesting he said look I would prefer that we used rational scientific arguments to deal with a climate crisis. He said, but he said, but I recognize that it actually could be a really good way to motivate people to get them to have a spiritual connection with the earth. And he was really just saying that instrumentally there is something behind this. And I thought that was extraordinary admission uh, of his to say that. And I think it really says something to that importance of finding deeper ways of connecting with the living world. Yeah, that is incredible. Um, and I think, I guess it's also recognizing that there are, there are lots of cultures and communities who already have that connection with the world, um, thinking about different indigenous communities and other cultures who've maybe had, had this built into parts of their religion or parts of their cultures. So I guess I'm interested in what your thought is around how 
actually whose voices we're hearing in some of these conversations. Um, I guess it feels like at the, at the moment there's a big recognition that we're you know, there's huge amounts of oppression and, and racial injustice around the way our structures are built at the moment. How how might we learn from and um, listen to, I suppose, it, from coming from the kind of Western perspective, um, the different cultures that have actually got this kind of relationship with the earth and an experience of long termism really baked into what they what they've done for thousands of years. Yeah, I certainly think that there is a lot of wisdom in indigenous cultures around long-term thinking, particularly intergenerational stewardship. So the classic example would be the idea of seventh generation decision-making, which can be found in you know, Native American peoples, you know, for example, in South Dakota, particularly Iroquois peoples in, in Canada. And you know, for at least 200 years, that idea of making decisions based on the impact seven generations ahead has been part of community decision-making processes. And that's certainly something that we could be learning from. Of course, if I sort of, you know, I've got to do a briefing for MPs in a week or two. And I said to them, right, you need to be doing seventh generation thinking and thinking 150, 200 years ahead. They might laugh me out of the room or off the screen. But it's really interesting. That there's some fantastic organizations around the world which are trying to take these kinds of indigenous ideas and bring them into political practice. So a really good example is a movement in Japan called Future Design, which is directly inspired by the seventh generation Iroquois idea. And what they do is they bring people to something like a, a citizen's assembly for decision-making for their local town or city, and they split them into two groups. And the first group are told they're residents from the present day, and the second group are given these ceremonial kimonos to wear and told they're residents and to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out the residents from 2060 come up with much more radical plans when it comes to uh, environmental policy or education, healthcare, all across the board. They're even more willing to pay higher water rates to improve their water infrastructure than the current generations who don't want the water rates to go up. And this is spreading across municipalities in Japan. And I think that kind of idea could be adopted in you know, cities and towns around the world, progressive cities. That's why I think giving power to cities is so important. So I think there's a lot to learn from indigenous cultures there, but equally the mention of uh, racial injustice is really important to recognize that that is a deep intergenerational issue that our, for example, criminal justice systems are a product of legacies from the past, colonial history, histories of slavery, which are deeply embedded uh, in our public institutions today. And there's a wonderful book by Leila Saad called Me and White Supremacy, and she talks about the idea of being a good ancestor, which is also the title of my book. And what she's saying is that we have to recognize if we don't deal with these problems now that are so deeply structured into our political systems and racism, then we're going to be passing these on, embedded in our institutions to the next generation and the generation after that. So this really is an intergenerational struggle. And we need to recognize these long time spans. And I really believe that the concept of legacy is very fundamental to all of what we're talking about here, that I think most people care about the legacies they leave, to keeping a part of themselves alive after they've gone. And we've inherited extraordinary legacies from the past, from those who made the great scientific discoveries we still benefit from, um, who built the cities we still live in, who planted the first seed. But we're also the inheritors of these more negative legacies. We've got bad ancestors as well as good ones things like the racial injustice that I've just been talking about. So the real challenge for us is to 
in, in a way, embrace an intergenerational form of the golden rule to do unto future generations as we would want future generations to have done unto us, right? What do we wish we had inherited? And then, therefore, what would we like to pass on to our descendants? That way, I think we can really do something right for the future holders, not just the shareholders, but the future holders of tomorrow. I think what you were saying just then about the, with the, the future design work in Japan, that sense of ceremony seems really interesting to me. The idea that actually, how do you, how do you experience what it might be to think in a longer term or, or give yourself a position where you're forced to think about that. I wonder if you've come across any, um, or, or have in your, in your own life, any sense of those kind of rituals or ceremonies that might happen at an individual or a community level that actually help extend our horizons of thinking. I really believe ritual is important, new forms of storytelling are important because I do believe that human history is in essence the history of ideas. And that's not my quote, that's from H.G. Wells. <laughs> and that idea of shifting how we think, it's partly about shifting how we think about time and our time horizons. And what can we do on a personal level? Uh, certainly in my life, I've tried to engage in ritual practices, <laughs> invent them which are about long-term thinking, things we can all do. You know, each summer, my kids and I, we go down with my partner to Lyme Regis in Dorset and we look for fossils along the coast. Now, you can find a little belemite, little squid-like creature and hold it in your hand. It's 195 million years old. This is one of the ways that you can look at it in wonder and feel a sense of deep time or point a telescope at the sky and recognize that the light hitting your eye comes from a star which may, have, may, may already be dead. The light began its journey before humans even evolved. Or you can make a monthly pilgrimage to an ancient tree that's a thousand years old, like a, a yew tree in a local churchyard, and imbibe a little bit of deep time there. And the novelist Richard Powers once said that we need to learn to live life at the speed of wood. And I love that idea. Life at the speed of wood, isn't that wonderful? Beautiful expression. And this sense of deep time, that we are just an eye blink in the cosmic story is really fundamental. It's very difficult to grasp. You can't just sort of buy it off the shelf. I mean, little kids who love dinosaurs, they can kind of get it, but I find it quite difficult. So I think we need to invent these rituals. And probably the main reason they're important, I think, to recognize deep time, the deep time goes into the past and into the future, and that we are just this eye blink, is to recognize that, look, who are we to have wrought such damage in the world in just a couple of hundred years with our deadly um, fossil fuel based economies, with our deadly technologies, don't we have an obligation to the great chain of life going far into the past and long into the future? Who are we to break this great chain? In, in Maori culture, there's this idea of whakapapa, which is their word for genealogy, the idea that we're in a great change. The, the, the living, the dead and the unborn are all here in the room with us. That's the kind of feeling that we need to get, but it's so difficult in a highly individualistic, egoistic, introspective culture. I think that's really interesting, that, that sense of how individualism might be a challenge to this. So it feels like that everything we're talking about is so much about community in so many different horizons. Um, and that, that's why I think maybe also what's, it, what's happened over the last few months has been so interesting of like the sense that people have not probably not for everyone, but for in general, there's been a feeling of soft slowing down and the recognition that actually some people have really enjoyed that time of 
things slowing, maybe not quite to the speed of wood, but feeling like you've slowed down. And that actually you've also had more, there's been a sense of community in a different, in a different way. So it feels like there's such a, such a desire for those two things to happen. Um, but it, it's interesting that you say the kind of individualism that we have in our, in our culture at the moment might be a, might be a barrier to doing that. Yeah, that's right. I think that in the last, say, 20 years, there's been a great recognition that we're not just individuals, you know, we're not just me, but we're also we, that humankind are egoistically driven, uh, but also driven by a need for community. And I think that's much more part of culture than it was. And I think it's been brought out really in extraordinary ways, as you mentioned, by the COVID-19 crisis by all those mutual aid support groups popping up, whether it's in Britain or in India, all over the world. And I think this is a great, offers a great possibility because it's only, I believe, a few steps from that kind of community action to things like that Japanese future design example. It doesn't take a lot, I think, to tip a society into making that idea of, you know, citizens assemblies, for example, seem quite normal. Um, but I think we need to expand our sense of community so that it goes forward in time as well as across space. And I, I can sort of accuse myself of this, I, I believe. You know, I've you know, written books about empathy, for example, and I very much focus on expanding our moral circle across space. So stepping into the shoes, understanding the perspectives of people who are living on the margins in my own society or in developing countries and so on. But I also believe we need to make that step into the shoes of others through time it's a much more difficult thing to get our heads around because we can't go and meet those future generations we can't talk to them but i think what we do know is that there will be human beings maybe along with some cyborgs 50 100 <laughs> 500 years into the future and that they will care about the things we care about they will fall in love care about purpose worry about security worry about freedom and they will want air to breathe and food to eat and so we know what we need to do despite the uncertainties of the future, that we need to feel a visceral connection with those future generations in that giant orange circle I showed earlier to make them feel like they are in the room with us and extend that sense of community forward into the unknown. That feels like a really good challenge for all of us to, to take forward over the next few months as well as we, as we kind of emerge a little bit from lockdown, thinking about actually how can we extend how can we extend into the future as well as as well as our wider community? Um, I think we probably have to wrap up for today. It feels like it's it's been a fantastic conversation. I've really really enjoyed it. Um, thank you for taking the time. Um, to those of you who are watching, I really really recommend the book. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic, and I hope our conversation has given you a bit of a, a taste of. There we go. There it is. There's the acorn. A bit of a, bit of a taste. There, there, of, there's a real acorn. Almost. <laughs> that's a really perfect one. Yes, I know. It's rather good. And the, and the marshmallow is pretty good as well. Um, but my kids <laughs> keep eating the marshmallows. Yeah, harder, harder to resist. Um, yeah, I think hopefully today has given you a bit of a flavour of what's, it, what's in the book. Um, but I really hope it lands on lots of desks of people in all kinds of areas, because I think it's such, such an important conversation for us to be having at this time. Um, you can find copies of the book on the RSA website. And while you're there, you can also find out more about upcoming RSA events. Um, from our from our events team and from our fellowship team. Um, actually, one of the events we've got coming up, we're really excited to just be starting a partnership with um, the Long Time Session, Long Time Project, um, and Serpentine Gallery on the Long Time Sessions. I know you're going to be um, speaking as part of those later in the summer, so do watch out for that. It's a set of 
um, online conversations, thinking about really focusing on long termism and how we can operationalize it um, across across policymaking, across the arts, um, and really learn from different parts of society around that. So I'm really excited about those conversations and looking forward to hearing from you a bit more in the summer. Um, so this, this series that we're talking about now is also linked to a major piece of work that we have at the RSA around ecological injustice and linking that with social justice. So also please do keep out, keep a lookout for things that are happening from the RSA on our side too. Um, we'd love to hear your ideas on this and the thoughts that you've heard today. So if you'd like to get involved in the conversation across social media, please use the hashtag RSA Bridges. Um, but thank you very much for a fantastic conversation today, Roman. It's been an absolute pleasure and um, look forward to, to hearing more from you and to, um, to seeing the, the full launch of your book and, uh, and the success that it's going to achieve. Thank you thank so you. much, Josie. Let's all become time rebels. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.